Hello and welcome to the Methades Bible Study Podcast. Methades is the weekly Sunday school class of Ian Pittman. As a teaching ministry of Kokomo Baptist Church, Methades encounters and explores Bible doctrine, theology, and apologetics as a Christian community learning the doctrines of Scripture and the lifestyle they require. Thanks for listening. All right, so last week we looked at uh, the beginning of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 because we saw that uh, there, what John is doing is giving instructions for how we are to discern whether someone is a child of God or a child of the devil and then at the beginning of chapter 4 he tells us to test the spirits Uh, and we saw how uh, he differentiates the spirit of God someone who is born of God uh, from the spirit of Satan or the devil and uh, the ways in which that manifests remember he says that those who do righteousness who are righteous uh, will live righteously and those who are not will not and you can tell by their living and according to righteousness, whether or not uh, they are a child of God. So this morning, uh, we're going to look at uh, something a little less heavy, which is how we love one another. Uh, Again, we've mentioned this, I think, every week, but we see John as the apostle of love, and this time... Uh, He's telling us pretty explicitly, how do we love one another? That's what he's doing at the end of chapter 3, and then at the end of chapter 4, he's going on this really beautiful uh, sort of rabbit, if you will, running a rabbit, about how God is love and how God manifested that love for us. And so uh, we pick up there in chapter 3, beginning with verse 11, and we'll read uh, through verse, uh, verse 18 to start with. Uh, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so we see there in verse 11, he starts, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another now this is the first time that john gives us an explicit definition of what that message is that they've heard from the beginning he says that we should love one another and then for the rest of the morning in our case we're going to see how that love is revealed it's not simply going out and and being good to one another but it's actually revealed in what god did how he displayed his love for us and then how we in turn display love based on god's love Uh, Now, when we get to verse 12, John begins urging his readers not to allow themselves to fall into a category of people who do not love the fellow believers. Uh, He does this by using a negative example. He said, we should not be like Cain. Now, this morning, we're going to spend a good bit of time going back and forth between the Old Testament uh, and 1 John. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. This is the only direct reference to the Old Testament in 1 John. But what is interesting is John's 
ideas here about Cain, and he says, Cain, who was of the evil one. Uh, that idea is not necessarily in Genesis, but it is prominent among the Jewish rabbis. And so the, these Jewish records report this murder as inspired by the devil. Of course, we know that uh, in Luke's gospel, what does Luke say about Judas? That he was indwelled by Satan himself and that he went out and betrayed Christ. Uh, so one of these examples comes from the pseudepigraphal book, uh, the, all right, did I not turn it on? Nope. There we go. The Apocalypse of Abraham. Now, this is a strange piece of writing. Of course, it's not in our Bible, nor should it be. Uh, but it is something that informed the early Jewish rabbinic tradition. And it comes from, comes out of that tradition. And part of what it has in it is Abraham, like John the Revelator, being taken up into heaven. And there Abraham describes the vision that he saw. And so we have a portion of this here. Um, and I looked and saw there was before me in creation. I saw Adam and Eve existing with him and with them, the cunning adversary, Satan, and Cain who acted lawlessly through the adversary and the slaughtered Abel and the destruction brought and caused upon him through the lawless one. So we have the Jewish tradition placing the blame, placing, I guess, really the motive for what Cain did squarely on the shoulders of Satan that it is Satan's influence, the adversary, as they say. It is his influence that caused Cain to do what he did. And so John is working according to this as well. He says there, um, who should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. And, of course, we've seen before what does it mean to be born of God, what does it mean to be born of Satan. Uh, so we can say between the Jewish tradition and what John has revealed to us, that he very definitely believes that Cain was a child of the devil. He says, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now we go back to Genesis, because in Genesis it implies that it was because Cain's actions were evil, that his heart was evil, that his offering was not accepted by the Lord. And it was because of Abel's righteousness that the Lord accepted his offering, and then it was because of Cain's anger because of Abel's righteousness that Cain committed murder, the first murder. Now, Genesis does not specify the nature of their respective actions. All it says is righteousness versus unrighteous. And what does John come back to? Righteousness shows that you're a child of God. If you do not display righteousness, you are not a child of God. And so we go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So it's Abel's righteousness that actually gives him a more lasting impact than Cain. Cain committed the first murder, but it is really the martyrdom of Abel that sets him apart. So when we get to verse 13 then, having spoken of Cain's murder of his brother, John reminds the readers that they're also going to be objects of hatred. He says, do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. Now, it, it's kind of strange how he goes from Cain and then just straight into, don't be surprised that the world hates you. Because when we 
proceed, he's going to talk about mutual love among believers as the sign of their having passed from death to life. So he just makes this statement and then sort of moves on. But it's not all that dissimilar to the way John records Jesus' Last Supper discourse in John chapter 15, verses 9 to 25. Uh, and so we have John writing there, as Jesus spoke, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you my friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that wherever you ask, uh, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And so we see all of that now being brought into 1 John. This idea of being in Christ, walking in Christ, walking as Christ, sharing in Christ's righteousness. And yet what is it that Christ says? They hated me first. So you can bet they're going to hate you. Why? Because you go out and you walk in my name. And it's interesting as well that John, of course, in, in chapter 1, and we're going to see it again in chapter 4, gives credit to his own eyewitness testimony of Jesus, that he was the apostle who laid on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper and so forth. And this is Jesus speaking directly to the apostles at the Last Supper. And now John is taking that and he's pushing it further and he's saying, now you, fellow believer, not I, John the Apostle, sit up here with some greater mandate than you. Uh -uh. You, fellow believer, guess what? You're going to be persecuted too. That's why these secessionists are here. That's why you must hold fast. Because what does that Last Supper do? Precedes the atonement. Now, John also appears to be associating the secessionists with the world. We've already talked about, he's referred to them as antichrists who went out from us because none of them belonged to us. That was in chapter 2. Uh, then last week in chapter 4, we saw him refer to them as false prophets who have gone out into the world and they manifest the spirit of the antichrist, which, is, which even now is already in the world. And that the secessionists are from the world and speak from the viewpoint of the world, so the world listens. But the author assures his readers, as we saw last week, that they are from God and have overcome the secessionists 
because greater is the one who is in you, the spirit of truth, than the one who is in the world, the spirit of Antichrist, or the spirit of falsehood. And so when we look then at, at verse 13, do not be surprised, brother, brothers, that the world hates you. Of course not. It's filled with Antichrist. It's filled with the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, in verse 14, he comes back to this main theme of this section, beginning in verse 11 through verse 24, and that is mutual love as a mark of the true children of God. But now he expresses it in a slightly different way. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Love for fellow believers, according to John, is a mark of those who have escaped the condemnation of hell because they have come to know God through Jesus Christ. John says you cannot love like you should love if you haven't first been, haven't first experienced the love of God. And John chapter 5, verse 24, again, Jesus, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So we have that same idea of passing from death to life as a synonymous idea with escaping condemnation to hell and obtaining eternal life. Now this idea of because we love our brothers there, it's an ongoing love. You don't, you know, I didn't walk in this morning and say to Brother Reeve, hey Brother Reeve, good morning, I love you, and then that be it. I don't get to quit. Actions, exactly. Ongoing, what are you characterized by? You know, John has made a big deal out of the secessionists being characterized by rebellion. And what he hasn't said, but he has said, is God's children are characterized by obedience. And he goes on to say in verse 14, whoever does not love abides in death. Eternal death. The secessionists, by their ongoing lack of love for the members of the community, show that they never really passed from death to life. They never knew God. They never obtained eternal life because they don't know God. They reject Christ and what Christ did. And so they cannot experience the eternal life, which knowledge of God would give them. So moving to verse 15, he comes back to this murderer idea. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now, of course, we've already talked about Cain and Abel. That's coming back as some uh, context here. But he's also referencing, and I didn't put a slide, but it may be worth turning there, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 21 same sort of idea and, uh, this is the sermon on the mount and there Jesus says you have heard that it was said to those of old you shall not murder whoever murders will be liable to judgment but he's doing this in the context of anger murder fueled by anger and so what John may be alluding to here is that those who are angry with their brothers are going to be subject to judgment in the same way as those who commit murder. And we say it sometimes, but we don't say it often enough. Well, we don't, I don't think we ever say it correctly. I think the correct way to think about it is no one sin is any better than any other. It all begets the same punishment from God. And it's all worthy of the fullness of his wrath. And so John goes on to say, 
and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So he's pushing on that further. Anyone who does not love abides in death. The person who doesn't love is like a murderer, and those who are consumed with murderous intents clearly do not have eternal life abiding in them because they do not know God, they do not display the love of God. In verse 16, he explains what the nature of that love is. And this is, I think, probably one of the most powerful parts of 1 John. He says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. The readers are people who know what love is because they know that Jesus Christ laid his life down for them. The sort of love exemplified in Christ's death is love which expends itself in the interest of others, not of self, but in others. And it's interesting that the context that John's writing in here is the context of heretical missionaries going out and spreading a gospel that's not in the interest of others. It's in the interest of self. It can't be in the interest of others because they reject Christ and what he's done. But we've said before, and we'll say it again, Christianity is a missionary religion. But it's a missionary religion characterized by love. If you miss love, you've missed the rest of it. Now, John gives us a corollary to Christ laying down his life for us. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And then he goes on to say, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to have that same sacrificial love that Christ did. If it was good enough for him, it should be good enough for us as those who live according and are being conformed, as Paul would say, to the image of Christ. Now, verse 17, this is where John starts stepping on toes, and he'll probably step on some this morning. He stepped on mine for a week. So uh, he says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John's saying that you live in the light of Christ's self-righteous, and self-righteous, and Christ's self-giving love for them. He is not self-righteous. And they should not close their hearts toward fellow believers in material need. He actually says that you can't close your hearts to a fellow believer in material need and still rightly claim that the love of God remains in you. He has in mind here something that comes really from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 to 9. This is the passage where the Israelites are cautioned against allowing meanness, calculating meanness, to cause them to close their hearts when confronted with a poor and needy person. In this verse, or these verses, they're told to be generous and lend to the poor even if in the seventh year, the year of rest, the year of jubilee, when all debts are to be canceled, they're still to be generous and lend to the poor even when that's near. And so it is perhaps with this in mind that John reminds his readers that the love of God and meanness of spirit cannot coexist. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, uh, notice what the writer does there. It's not your land except that it's been given to you. You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother 
For you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. If God has given you the land that you now occupy, don't you think God will take care of you if you're taking care of his people? Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye looks grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing and he cries to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. Then he goes on into verse 18. He says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You can talk a good game. You can pretend to be a lot but it's in how you live your life. That <laughs> makes me think one time I had a friend who was regrettably attempting one of these online dating sites and uh, was going to be on there, and, and he was talking about, I don't know, some girl or whatever that was supposed to be in college for an engineering degree, and I looked at him and said, you do realize she could claim to be a Supreme Court justice on there, right? She could tell you she's a lot of things, but you don't know her. Are you sure about this? And that's sort of the same sort of pragmatism that John's asking us to have here. Look at what people do. Don't just listen to what they say. How do they live their lives? What are they willing to do for the kingdom? Are they expending themselves in the interest of the advancement of God's kingdom? Or are they tight-fisted and holding back? James is a little more explicit. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food... And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Regrettably, this is something that I think evangelicalism has taken a turn for. And maybe what our mainline Methodist, Episcopalian, and so forth, what those brothers and sisters have maintained, though a lot of their theology has otherwise changed. We're the world's worst to look at somebody and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I'll be thinking of you. I'll be praying for you. Has it ever occurred to any of us that that person might have been put in our path for us to do something about? Not to just sit there. But perhaps there's a reason we can help them. We don't do that. We don't like to talk about things like social justice or social injustices it makes us uncomfortable because we feel like liberals when we do but the church is supposed to be the social justice mission in the world the biggest mistake we ever made was letting the government handle it if the church had done its job we wouldn't be in the shape that we're in right now I don't believe okay I'll get off my soapbox so let's read from verse 19 to verse 24 now. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So in verse 19, he reinforces what he said to his readers already, that they do not need to close their hearts toward their fellow believers in need. But actually they will know that they belong to the truth 
when their love finds practical expression in helping others and helping those who are in need. Now in verse 20, again, he steps on toes, but in a little, perhaps a different way. Whenever our heart condemns us, how many times have we felt like we're not good enough? When we're not doing enough, whenever the heart objects to legitimate calls upon his generosity, when we are actually in a position to respond. John says God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. God isn't subject to the same meanness that we are. When the Bible says that he so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever should believe in him, God is a generous, loving, gentlemanly God. He loves his creation. He loves his people. It's his desire to reconcile it back to himself. So he's not subject to the meanness that we are to look at somebody and go, eh, not today. His generosity is greater. His compassion towards the needy is much greater. And we should continue to seek to be like God. And then John says he knows everything, and that's the uncomfortable part. We don't get to hide when we don't do something. God knows it. You might be going down the highway and decide not to do something you know. Nobody else around, but God's there. God knows. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. He says, if the reader's hearts do not object to their responding calls on their generosity so that they actually provide the material assistance needed by their fellow believers, then they're going to experience confidence, parousia, not to be confused with parousia, which we looked at last week, but parousia in their relationship with God. Boldness, confidence, frankness, public openness of speech, what that Greek word means. We can stand boldly before the throne because our hearts do not condemn us. And in verse 22, he says, and whatever we ask, we receive from him. When you approach God in prayer, you do not have the meanness of heart. Then you can confidently stand before God and approach him in prayer and know that your prayers will be heard that your request will be granted if they're in the will of God. But let me tell you something. If you're loving like you should be and you're obeying like you should be, God will make sure you're in the will. And he says, whatever we ask, we receive of him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. We constantly keep his commandments. Again, it's not checking one off a list and going on. Paul tells us in his own biography, he was blameless before the law. Over 600 Jewish commandments he had to keep. But do you know how that worked? Sort of like a Boy Scout badge. Oh, I did that. Move on to the next one. What does God require of us? Ongoing, constant keeping of his commandments. Now, when we get to verse 23, we're going to change course just a little bit. In verses 19 to 22, of course, we've seen John's warning us against being mean in our hearts and encouraging us to practice generosity in the face of the needs of fellow believers. But now in verse 23, he makes very explicit what God's command is. He says, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. 
Believing in the name of Jesus Christ means believing in the person of Jesus Christ, knowing Christ. And it also means total commitment and obedience to Christ. So we get to verse 24 then, and we get sort of the summary. He says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So those who believe in God's son and love one another as he commanded them, truly live in God and God lives in them. And so he comes back to his purpose in this letter, which is to enable his readers to distinguish those who claim to live in God and those who actually live in God. And he encourages them to remain faithful to the message they heard from the beginning, the message that they're being taught by the anointing of the Holy One, by the Spirit whom he has given us, the indwelling of God's Spirit in their lives and in our lives as believers. All right, so then we're going to move to Chapter 4, all right, we're doing good. And we'll read from verse 7 to uh, verse 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. He begins in what is now our familiar way, beloved. And he says, let us love one another. Why? He gives them the reason. For love is from God. Now, I'll explain this in verses 9 to 10, but he comes back to a little criteria for being a child of God. He says, whoever has been born of God, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then in verse 8, he says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. There can be no real knowledge of God which is not expressed in love for fellow believers. So when we get to verse 9, again, another beautiful section in 1 John. This details how God is love. He says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. God displayed his love very publicly, and he carried it about among human beings, so as to be seen and appreciated by them. Because God's purpose is that we might live through Christ. And in order to live, we must know. And in order to know, it means we must believe and partake in the atoning sacrifice and the gift of eternal life. John chapter 17, verse 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And what have we previously seen from Jesus? That knowing God is equated with obedience to him. And then what does John say? Knowing God is equated with obedience to him. And what is involved in that obedience? Love. So in verse 10, John says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love shouldn't be understood for how we show our love for him, but in how he demonstrated it for us, and then how we live according to that love. 
because revelation of Christ was not enough. It didn't affect anything for God to send Jesus and Jesus to have an earthly ministry and then for him to be assumed into heaven without the death and resurrection. Christ had to be the atoning sacrifice to remove the guilt we have because of our sin so that we might have eternal life. As we've talked about in, in John's gospel, John says he came to the world and the world knew him not, yet the world was made through him. So in verse 11 here, he says, Beloved, if God so, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Same thing we saw in chapter 3. That's the way that God loved us, sac sacrificially, that he sent his son to be among us, to be the sacrifice for our sin. And so that love should cause us to love one another. Now, it's a strong theological statement, but that's also just a practical one. How do you get along in Christian community? You love each other. No one has ever seen God, he says in verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us. Now, he's made some statements previously about how you can't see God. God is invisible. His glory is too mighty for us to behold. But how we see God is in the love that is demonstrated between believers. They demonstrate that the unseen God loves them and lives in them. Now, it reassures the readers that they really know God, despite what the secessionists are saying. So the secessionists are going around in all of this time and basically making claims that you have to have certain knowledge to know God. And one of those things that you have to know is that Christ really isn't the fleshly Messiah. But it is not at all concerned with love or correct behavior or anything else. We talked about this last week. They claim to not have sinned, and they claim that your behavior is not important. Well, if your behavior is not important, then God sending Christ to die on our behalf was dumb. I mean, let's just face it. It was a stupid thing to do if sin and behavior don't matter. But what John is saying is, yes, it does matter. If you're not displaying love, you're showing that God doesn't abide in you because of what Christ did. And then he goes on to say, and his love is perfected in us. Now, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but John uses this phrase or, or the context of perfected love four times in 1 John. But what he means here is God's love is made complete in believers when they love one another. That sort of love circuit is complete. And so we move now, uh, verse 13 to verse 21. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. For this is the love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen 
cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So in verse 13, what we see John saying is the Spirit teaches the truth about why God sent Jesus as the Savior of the world. And because we have this knowledge, that provides believers with the basis of assurance. It sort of extends into verse 14 there, the love God expressed in the sending of his son to be the savior of the world. And because they believe that teaching, then they can be assured that they dwell in God and God dwells in them. And we move to verse 14, and we see John affirms his eyewitness testimony, and the next few verses are going to be related to that eyewitness testimony. Uh, we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Now, he doesn't go through in great detail what it means for God to have sent his son to be the savior of the world. Simply, I was there, I saw it, I can affirm and testify to you that that was why he sent Jesus. And that is what Jesus' effect was. And so we get to verse 15 and he applies this testimony of these eyewitnesses himself and the other apostles and those who were alive and witnessed the ministry and death and resurrection of Christ. He applies this testimony to bring assurance to his readers. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now this is a shortened version of the Orthodox confession of Jesus' ministry. We've been talking about it for weeks now. The person and work of Jesus Christ at the resurrection, at the crucifixion, in his ministry, all wrapped up together is a confession. You have to confess the whole thing. You don't get to pick and choose what you like. Jesus' ministry is Jesus' ministry from beginning to end and extending, by the way, to the last days, to the end of time. We've talked about Jesus' lasting impact on time and how John talks about that. So we get to verse 16, and 16 I divided sort of into two parts. So the first part is this beginning, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Now this is where the end of the testimony of the eyewitnesses is. Uh, because we have seen and we can testify to the fact that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, John says, we can affirm this demonstration of God's love, and based on our testimony, you can know and rely on the love that God has for you. In a sense, your faith can be bolstered by the fact that I was there, that the other apostles were there. But then, uh, moving on into the latter half of verse 16, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So we get back to this idea that God is love, that God provided an atoning sacrifice in the person and work of his son. We often like to say, God is love. But I don't know that we always say, God is love with the full impact of what does it mean for God to be love. But this statement is intended to bolster the confidence of the readers. They love each other. They're expressing it. And John wants them to realize that this is evidence that God lives in them and they live in God. They're living in a community that is being ravaged by false teaching. They're living among people who are telling them, just because you're living right, just because you have righteousness, just because you love this guy, who, by the way, we think is dumb because he believes in the fleshly incarnation of Christ, just because you're doing all that doesn't mean that you know God. What you really need is the knowledge that we have. 
sort of sounds like word of faith and prosperity gospel just a little bit. What you need is to give a little more money. What you need is to deny or to not really pay attention to the fact that you sin because you're insulting God when you admit your sin. Uh-uh, that's not what John says. So we get to verses 17 and following. Now, verse 17 and 18 contain the third and fourth references to the completeness of love found in 1 John. So we saw that to begin with in John chapter 2, verse 5. And now the rest of these have been in chapter 4. So chapter 4, verse 12, chapter 4, verse 17, and chapter 4, verse 18. So what does he mean here in verse 17? He says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. The type of love that John seems to have in mind here is God's love that is with us, which completes its work so that our fear as we face the day of judgment is removed. And remember, sin was judged at the cross, but missed opportunities, failure to act when God puts something in front of you you're still going to have to answer for that. But John says, if you are perfected, if you have that perfected love within us, you may stand in confidence before God on that day of judgment. And I think he also means there, because you have that eternal life, your sin was dealt with at the cross. So you don't have that judgment to worry about either. And so in chapter 2, verse 28, we talked about confidence. And what was confidence there? It was confidence that arises out of a believer's obedience to God's word. So now we're back to obedience, which is, means that you know God and you know Christ if you're obeying his word. It also means that if you're obeying him, you love him. So believers will have confidence, as John says, because as he is, so also are we in the world. Believers who love one another in this world in the same way that Christ loved his disciples, remember what we read from the Last Supper, show that they live in God. And therefore, they have no need to fear as they face the day of judgment. In verse 18, he says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Love produces confidence, because love and fear can't abide in the same place. What is this fear of? The fear of judgment. But when you love, as he's just said, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. If you have confidence, you don't fear. He says, for fear has to do with punishment. Now we have a, a Greek word here, colossus, punishment. It's used one other time in the New Testament there in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. It's not a slap on the wrist. This is divine wrath. This is Jesus ending the parable of the sheep and the goats, by the way. So this is punishment, which God doles out to the unrighteous on the day of judgment, on the day of the Lord. <coughs> And he says, whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So again, understanding the love that God had for you in sending his son, what it affected for your soul and your salvation in living in love and obedience. 
He says in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for sins. He knew from the foundation of time, he knew in his eternity that he was going to send Jesus to be the atonement for sins. We don't need to miss that. We don't need to get that uh, wrong or confused. We often hear it said that, we don't like to use this phraseology, but basically that Jesus was plan B, that what God had intended was the garden, but the garden didn't work out, so he had to come up with something new. Mm -mm. God is omniscient, he's omnipotent, and he is sovereign. So we love because he first loved us. He loved us in eternity past and eternity present. He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice, and those who are beneficiaries of that love love God in return. If you, the love relationship that we have as believers with God is real, then it's going to manifest itself in love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice it doesn't say it'll manifest its love for fellow Baptists or for fellow Catholics or for fellow uh, Methodists or whatever. It says for fellow believers, for the brothers. Verse 20, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. We've been here, we've done this with John. But he continues to stress it. He wants to reassure his readers that they really knew God. And he wants to show them that the claims of the secessionists are false. He says, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. All right, this takes the form of one of those arguments where if you can't do this little thing, you, you can't do this big thing. Right? If you can't love, if I can't love Ms. Dot, I can't love God. The nature of the true experience of God is such that it does not exist and it cannot exist without manifesting itself as love between believers. And then in verse 21 he says, And this is the commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Jesus' new command that John talked about early on, now we're back to it again. John chapter 13, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John chapter 15, verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And then chapter 15, verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Notice how much of that comes out of the Last Supper conversation. John picks up this theme because he wants to reassure his readers who did love their fellow believers that they really knew God. And he's showing them with this idea in mind that the secessionists who aren't exemplifying that love don't know God. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. If you enjoyed our study, please be sure to like us on Facebook at Mercedes KBC or our church page at Kokomo Baptist Church.